The Ulster Workers' Council Strike 1974, Part 8, Some Decisive Action. discussions looked at ways to break the stranglehold that the UWC had over the province. By now, ministers were being helicoptered indirectly to Stormont from nearby army bases. John Hume's Ministry of Commerce had for some time had an oil contingency plan in readiness for any energy crisis which might occur involving the takeover of petrol supplies and distribution by Ministry of Commerce officials and civil servants. Faulkner in his memoirs states that Hume brought this before the executive and we agreed it in principle, and the plan was this. In essence, the British Army would move in and seize the refinery and the distribution of products to provide bulk users, the hospitals, medical and welfare services, food processing, water and sewage, and 21 petrol stations would also be commandeered to supply an estimated 6,500 essential users. Coupons and licensing for users would be issued from the government departments evenly distributed to the designated petrol stations throughout Northern Ireland. For the rest, prices would be fixed and the remaining petrol stations could function if they wished to open or remain open until the oil depots in Lorne, Carrick, Fergus and Londonderry ran out. Of course, in a two-front war against Protestants and Catholics, the British Army demanded that extra troops be brought in. Because there were calculations, given the Belfast gas manufacturing plant was within the area to be seized. If the workers in the gas manufacturing plant walked out or refused to pass army cordons, then this too would be requisitioned and run by the army. Factored in was the risk of Protestant sabotage, but the UWC had always desired to tie the army up elsewhere and never had any plans to arson or sabotage. If this plan sounds familiar, it is no accident. This is the very same plan the UWC used to rest control of the Protestant areas of Ulster and to stop leaks. John Hume tweaked the plan at the last minute. But I, sympathetic to the UWC, were watching all of them, and the plan was leaked to the UWC within hours. As for the power stations, John Hume had a plan to break the UWC chokehold there as well. He had an electricity plan. The problem was that the Northern Ireland Electricity Service Chiefs simply didn't like it. They viewed the proposal, according to Don Anderson, as simply sectarian in character. John Hume's plan was this, to split the electricity grid Pulkira had a 40% Catholic workforce. Hume was a dairyman and he had been informed that the Catholic workers were willing to continue working. He wanted to split the mainly Catholic west of Northern Ireland from the mainly Protestant east. Thus, therefore, the Catholic majority areas would enjoy full power and the Protestants west of the River Ban would be the ones to suffer if Ballylumford was closed down. The Northern Ireland Electricity Service Chief Jim Smith argued that at Kulkira 
the Catholic jobs were unevenly distributed. It was questionable whether such a skeleton workforce could run the station. And there were management union agreements about job allocation to think about, to which John Hume countered that there was a state of emergency on. Then James Smith argued, changing tack, that this would provoke the Ballylumford workers to walk out, and there was no guarantee Kilkira could be up and running in that time. And what if the 60% workers who were Protestant and were on strike wanted to return? There was a risk of sabotage. The truth was that the NIES were deeply proud of the fact that they had meticulously kept sectarianism out of their workplace. And if John Hume, pursuing a political agenda, wanted to bring it in, he could fuck off. The NIES leaders were painfully conscious that these workers would have to work together again. For them, the overriding objective was, regardless of government pressure, to keep sectarianism absolutely out of the workplace. The NIES chief, Jim Smith, with unalloyed decency, therefore went to Kilkira and told the workers that if the Ballylumford men walked out, armed personnel would take over. Would they be prepared, he asked, to work alongside them? He was craftily obscure about who was to work with who and where. Initially, Anderson reports, the Catholic workforce of Kilkira said they would have necessarily work alongside British workers, but they needn't have worried. The provisional IRA, still watching from the wings and being the incorrigibly violent cunts they were in 1974, got wind of this and threatened to punish any Catholic who worked alongside British soldiers either by shooting them or blowing off their kneecaps. And with that, the electricity plan ended its short life. But Faulkner took the oil contingency plan to Merlin Reese, knowing that the British Army were crucial instruments in this plan being a success. I reported to the executive, Faulkner relates in his memoirs, that Reese had readily agreed to the proposal of the previous day for the establishment of a standing committee of ministers under the chairmanship of the Secretary of State, that is Merlin Reese, or the Minister of State, Stanley Orme, to coordinate the civil and military aspects. The executive was to be represented by the Ministers of Commerce, again John Hume, and the Minister of Environment, Roy Bradford, who had broken ranks at the weekend calling for talks and whose resignation had been refused, as well as the Minister of Manpower Services. Other ministers could be called upon as required, he said. The Standing Committee to Combat the UWC met on the Thursday evening. There they went through possible actions to recover control of the power stations and the petrol supplies. Faulkner mentions General King talking of naval sappers being gathered up from Malta and various places and flown in to help. Nobody told him that the army had concluded already that it could not keep the power supplies going alone. John Hume was there and then put forward the oil contingency plan and the executive were satisfied by the assurances of support but the lack of any clear line of action was obvious. The executive met twice on Thursday, first in the morning to discuss the government's attitude and to decide that the oil plant was the only solution, as there was, says Faulkner, no acceptable alternative means of demonstrating our determination to govern. According to Faulkner, the Northern Irish executive were resolved that strong pressure should be put on the Secretary of State to give us the necessary support. Faulkner spoke to Rees, and demanded one decision or other by 4pm on the use of troops to maintain essential supplies. And after a further meeting of the executive at 3.30, they had a message relayed through senior civil servants that there would be a decision in their favour. The British cabinet was meeting, and the main issue they were discussing at that very moment was that the British government were being assured of the course it was taking and the extent of troop numbers involved. According to Faulkner, John Hume himself went to see Stan Ormond Stormont Castle at 6.30pm to deliver their ultimatum. Send the British Army in, he told Orm, or they would all resign. By then, Rees had been summoned to London and was already in attendance. 
at a meeting of the British cabinet. Very soon after, the executive received a telephone call inviting Faulkner and Napier and Fitt to meet at Chequers for discussions with Wilson and his ministers. It seemed at last, says Faulkner, some decisive action was being planned. Now, at last, they would be in a position to break the strike. On the 24th of May, Faulkner, Oliver Napier of the Alliance Party and Jerry Fitt, leader of the SDLP, second in the executive and a member of parliament for West Belfast, met the Prime Minister Harold Wilson at Chequers, his stately office in Buckinghamshire. Napier came with Ken Bloomfield, the senior civil servant of the executive, and his senior advisor, Tom Roberts. All three were helicoptered in the Aldergrove Airport, where, joining Faulkner, they took a plane bound for RAF Northolt. Behind them, they left a world where ministerial cars no longer worked because of a lack of petrol, where the routes were closed off by the strikers in depth, and they had to be helicoptered from army bases to cabinet meetings and back, where the writ did not run even as far as Dundonald House, where the body of de dedicated civil servants served them, which they could gaze at impotently from the windows of their parliament and stormant. Something had to be done to rest control back, and now, finally, events were taking a new course, and a strike back using all the powers of the British government was about to begin. At Chakers, the Prime Minister was flanked by a high-powered committee of British cabinet ministers, come to gauge the resolve of these men and to carry their opinions gained to the meeting of the British cabinet, called to discuss what action to take to break the strike later that evening. The Attorney General, Samuel Silken, was there, as well as the Defence Secretary, Roy Mason, and Merlin Rees, in his capacity of Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Rees had already briefed his fellow British rulers at length prior to the meeting. The executive were looking for decisive action. The British ministers were looking for resolve on the part of the executive leaders, such as would justify the commitment of the British military. The meeting went on for hours, and the executive leaders were pumped continually. Then there were informal questions over lunch, then formal discussions again. At length, Wilson and his colleagues were satisfied and assured Faulkner, Fitt and Napier that British soldiers would be committed to break this strike and to properly confront the Protestant strikers, if that was what it came to. They would start with the oil and fuel plan. The British Army would move in on the fuel refineries and petrol stations. However, the power stations and the electricity supply were an overarching concern. The Army technicians could not work the turbines. That had been made clear. But the oil and fuel plan, the decisive act, could shift the balance of thinking and turn the civilians who ran the power stations back to work and back to work them, ending the power the UWC waded through them. Luckily, some of the minutes were released in 2005. Before this, we know that Wilson, thinking out of the box, had looked at the possibility of using the power generated by nuclear submarines, divested of the missiles, to infuse the electrical grid with enough power to trump the hold of the Ballylumford strikers. It was concluded in government papers, released in 2005, that a Type 82 destroyer being utilised, such as HMS Bristol, could put power into the system, but that a further 354 megawatts would be needed. But the real problem was, as Wilson reluctantly admitted, that although nuclear submarines could be plugged into the national grid and the Royal Dockyards in England and Scotland, in Northern Ireland there were no equivalent cables. Essentially, there was no socket to plug them in. Ha! Anyway, recent his memoir states, Harold began his report of the Chakras meeting to the Cabinet by giving the background of the executive's fuel proposal. He pointed out our lack of control on the ground and the attempt by Protestant extremists to establish an unacceptable neo-fascist government, a description usually used by Jerry Fitt, reassures us. 
The extremists would probably seek to avoid a confrontation with the troops, but nevertheless, if some essential services were restored, there would be no doubt an attempt to disrupt others. So Wilson is using the phrase extremist, trying to establish a neo-fascist government. But it turns out that he did not get that term from fit. In the minutes of the Checkers meeting, Brian Faulkner is reported to tell Prime Minister Hal Wilson that, quote, those who were urging the British government to talk and negotiate with those who were responsible for the strike action had failed to realise that the situation was now out of the control of Mr West, Faulkner's successor, and Mr Paisley. The outcome, Faulkner went on, which the Protestant extremists sought, was without question an independent neo-fascist Northern Ireland. And so this was from the leader of the Ulster Protestants' own lips. And this is in the Checkers Minutes, in papers later released and redacted. After stressing the urgency of the need for action, Faulkner tells Wilson that the erosion of support for the duly constituted authority could be put right quickly by the assertion of authority on the ground. If the executive could recover its ability to govern and restore a measure of normality, the recent statements of the executive would give it new strength to carry public opinion. But, Faulkner concludes pointedly, that firm decisions were required. He repeats his plea for military action against the strikers. Wilson had already agreed that the army would go into the petrol stations and oil refineries, but viewed the power stations as more problematic, worrying that the middle management would walk out. And from the minutes, we see the kernel of Harold Wilson's later speech was forming. The idea of a prime ministerial broadcast also arose during this meeting, says Faulkner in his memoirs, and it was agreed that Wilson and I should both broadcast to the nation the following day. The content of Wilson's speech was also formed here. The neo-fascist thugs, the fact that he was assured that the vast majority wanted to work, the fact that he was assured by Oliver Napier, the head of the Alliance Party, that the UWC were going to take control of food distribution in the next week, and the assurance that the UWC would avoid direct confrontation and go into retreat. He was also assured by FIT that the UDA were intervening to control the distribution of welfare payments, now in a state of virtual collapse. I can find no evidence in relation to this plan to take control of food distribution. Oliver Napier claims to have heard it from paramilitary sources, but I can find no evidence for it. Many attribute to Wilson a cynical delay afterward to see if the executive would survive, but the contents of his speech the night after is entirely based on what he was told by the executive at that checkers meeting. He seems to have believed their narrative and took their interpretation of what was happening uncritically. Anyway, Faulkner and Napier returned to Northern Ireland waiting for Merlin Reese's assurance that he would contact them when the Cabinet approved the use of troops into the oil refineries. Faulkner and Fitt and Napier waited, and while they waited, an emergency meeting of the British Cabinet went into session to discuss how the UWC hold over Northern Ireland could be finally broken. And at their command, they had all the military, political and civil resources of the state. Merlin Rees, the Prime Minister, the Attorney General Samuel Silken, all were there, as well as the Defence Secretary Roy Mason, and they were soon joined by their colleagues. The discussion went on about how to make this counter-strike effective. The discussion ranged over the logistics and concluded with a startling assurance by Roy Mason that even with extra troops needed to drive the tankers and to protect them in transit, we, quote, we're seeking only to supply the same amount of petrol as now being distributed by the UWC. The interesting point here 
is that the priority lists for those receiving the carefully distributed petrol were virtually the same as those drawn up by the UWC, and this was no accident. It was the government's original plan, created as a contingency against the Republican threat that had given the UWC the idea. And then comes a revelation. From Reese in his memoirs, he states, Handling was left to the Prime Ministers and the Ministers concerned. We were also instructed to look at the food situation in Catholic areas in case the need arose to take further steps. Although, in fact, he goes on to say, these areas were not faring too badly. Derry was near the border and the UWC had made sure of petrol supplies to Belfast. This is a revelation skirted over by all the ministers at that meeting, preferring to see them as neo-fascist sectarian thugs. When the eight petrol tankers were first allocated at the beginning of the strike, Harry Murray on his own initiative had sent the first tanker into the Republican heartlands of West Belfast. It was a gesture which drew the surprised attention of the provisional IRA leadership. In fact, as Fisk relates, the Catholic areas of Belfast, feeling under siege with a British army base primarily in their areas for years, and the focus of security disrupting their lives and communities, had their first experience in five years of near normality. The buses still ran, people in the main still went about their business, with a yoke on them lifted to a degree, as the focus of the army and government was elsewhere. The RUC had tasked themselves with protecting Catholic houses in Protestant areas, but like the UWC said, they had no intention of attacking Catholic houses in Protestant areas. Rees had brought with him the letter from General Frank King and put it into the mix. Indeed, the papers of the time reported that General Frank King had been at the cabinet meeting, adding to the sense of apprehension in Ulster that something of great military significance was being discussed. The cognitive dissonance in the view of the strikers as neo-fascist intimidating people with barricades comes to a head when Rees relates... There were other problems facing us, I told my colleagues, such as the distinct possibility that the flying control and safety staff at Aldergrove Airport would walk out. The concern was not over civilian flights, but how a walkout would affect the RAF's role in flying in the extra men and supplies into the province. I had asked, Reese goes on, for steps to be taken in preserving this link with the outside world, or, more accurately, another part of the UK. The Chancellor of the Exchequer helpfully volunteered to look into economic sanctions against the Harland and Wolfe shipyard, which they viewed, given its size, a 96% Protestant workforce, to be a university of loyalist Protestant extremism. The point was whether, as a subsidised industry, the subsidy should be cut with the threat of many thousands of redundancies. After arranging debate on the different ways to cripple the UWC, it was decided by the British Prime Minister and his cabinet that British soldiers would move into the refineries and the petrol stations and wrest control of the fuel supply from the UWC stranglehold. This would be the first strike. And then they would watch the UWC for signs of crumbling in the face of their own government's concerted action against them. The UWC could either buckle and call off the strike or divide their councils and the strike would end with the breaking of ranks or simply bringing out the illogicality of the idea of the British fighting the British to prove how British they were. In this scenario too, if violence was a result, the UWC would lose support of the moderate majority of working and middle class Protestants and the workers would go back to work. The counter-strike was back on. As Reese observes, the decision reflected the strong feelings in the cabinet against the UWC and its supporters who rejected Westminster for wanted its money. This sentiment too went into Wilson's speech and rebounded on him splendidly as we shall see. Because here again we see the kernel of Harold Wilson's disastrous national address to the UK the next evening. Armed with all the information available to him, 
Wilson decided that he would set out to the people of Great Britain what these people were and what the people of Great Britain thought of them and make sure that these people in revolt would listen and be chastened into changing their ways. Wilson, assured of the lack of support for the UWC, for those neo-fascist thugs, from the lips of Faulkner, Fitt and communists like Andy Barr, decided to tell the people of mainland Britain about these thugs and shame them and break the stranglehold. Faulkner was at home when Reese rang him at 11pm and told him the oil and fuel plan would be implemented. Fitt received the call in his London hotel and rang Faulkner immediately. The impression was that the army would go in no later than Sunday morning. In Belfast, the papers that evening more or less speculated the truth. But everyone was certain that a meeting at such a high level that went on for such a length of time, at which many speculated the military top brass were present, meant something of enormous consequence was being debated. Were the British government going further and about the act decisively against the leaders themselves in what was clearly by now a national rebellion and therefore high treason, cut off the head of the rebellion? The British had a good track record for that. And now it was revealed that the Prime Minister was about to address the nation with Faulkner to follow immediately afterwards. Something massive, everybody, including the UWC, were certain, was about to be launched against them. Now we come to the Balamina murders. That same day, the 24th of May, was the day of the Wayside murders which caused consternation in the province and disconcerted the UWC. Andy Terry, the head of the UDA, and Ken Gibson, the head of the UVF, had ordered their members not to use violence repeatedly. They had clearly ordered them to leave Roman Catholic-owned bars, especially those in Roman Catholic areas, absolutely alone. This was mostly followed in Belfast, Portadown, and in the industrial belt east of the Ban. But it was in Ballymena, in the far north, in the Reverend Dame Paisley's constituency, that the killings occurred. They were carried out by a group of 30 men, half UDA and half UVF, many of whom we would call hard men, all shoulders and attitude, wearing balaclavas and dressed in paramilitary gear. After drinking all day, and including at least one man from Belfast, taking it upon themselves to enforce and extend the UWC's writ, they started going round in a hired taxi and two minibuses to Catholic bars and ordering them to close. At the same time, the UVF and UDA men were doing the same thing in Balamoney. The Balamina mob went into three bars, wielding cudgels, smashing windows and furniture and threatening the customers as they proceeded in convoy towards Antrim. Then they chanced upon the wayside Halt Bar, owned by two middle-aged Catholic workers, Sean and Brendan Byrne. The windows where the eight children were watching TV were smashed as the raiders forced their way into the small kitchen at the back. The two brothers put up a fight, determined to resist the threat to their property. One of the party, Thomas McClure, had a revolver. He drew it and seeing Brendan Byrne was being bested, but then besting his colleague, shot him promptly three times at point-blank range. He then shot a shocked Sean Byrne twice. In the struggle, he lost his balaclava, which was found at the scene. Sean Byrne's daughter, who had ordered the other girls to lie on the floor, had the presence of mind, watching from an upstairs window, to note the numbers of the vehicles. In this manner, another extended family was casually destroyed. The reading relatives were the subject of abuse and threats from the drunken mob. As the rampaging paramilitaries got back in their vehicles and proceeded in convoy to dokes, swigging liquor, it took a while before they noticed the RUC car tailing them. The officers watched as weapons and hoods were discarded out of the window in disbelief. Having radioed ahead, RUC officers from Antrim Town had set up a police roadblock 
and the convoy drove up to it. All 30 paramilitaries were arrested and taken into custody. Then, doing some good boot leather work, officers found the pistol used to execute the two men at the roadside. Thomas McClure would later be sentenced to life for the cold-blooded murders at Belfast City Commission in December 1974, convicted by the strands of her and the balaclava that had been pulled from him in the melee. The UWC were thrown into consternation by this. Glenn Barr would later state that these murders were the ones which deeply affected him most and disgusted him, given their brutality, their pointlessness, and the fact that they were committed by men ostensibly under their remit, even though there were standing orders not to use violence and to leave Catholic bars well alone. Ian Paisley and Bill Craig were furious that everything they set out to do was disgraced by a drunken, murdering mob of UDA and UVF men. A heated discussion, Fisk tells us, took place with Terry and Gibson, who in the end asserted that the killings had been carried out without their authority. Was this to become another day of shame like the strike fiasco of 73? Would 30 scum undo everything with these execrable murders? The army and RUC feared more murders to come. The possibility of more outbreaks of violence were in the minds of Reese and Orm, and the prospect that this, this strike would discredit itself again, just as in 73. Wilson and the UWC would refer to four deaths that day, the other two being the 29-year-old Patrick McGurr and 20-year-old Eileen McCrory, killed when their car smashed into a tree, put across the Dungan and the Oma Road as a barricade. In their broadsheet, the UWC unconditionally condemned the killings as a direct opposite of what they were trying to achieve. To the Catholics of Northern Ireland, it announced, You have long feared the Protestant backlash against Republican terrorism. The provost, the provisional IRA, have sought to provoke that backlash in order to make you dependent on them as your defenders. Well, the Protestant backlash has come, but did you ever imagine that it would be like this? Where is the burning and the looting? Where are the pogroms and the assassinations? The Protestant backlash has now been in full swing for 11 days. The entire social life of Northern Ireland is in its grip. But you are safer in your houses and on the streets than you were before it began. Brian Faulkner, following Wilson's speech, said, Last night is a direct result of this situation. Four people were killed. Faulkner is a liar. The people killed on Friday night were not killed at the behest of the UWC. People have been killed regularly on the streets, in pubs and in their homes for five years now. That killing has not increased since the UWC asserted its power. It has decreased in a remarkable manner. The killings on Friday night were the remnant of the old ways, not a product of the new. When Faulkner governed Ulster, he could not restrain the paramilitary factions in the Protestant community, which had been provoked into being by the IRA. Neither could William Whitelaw, the previous Secretary of State, or the new executive. The UWC has done more to restrain them in the last 11 days than was done in the previous five years. The press cries out about the Tartan gangs, but the Tartan gangs and the paramilitary factions have to a great extent been shown the error or at least the ineffectiveness of their ways by the UWC. Much of their earlier behaviour resulted from feelings of frustration and from the lack of coherence and social purpose in the politics of the Protestant community. But the UWC have put an end to all that. They have brought about a purposeful exertion of economic power by the community and therefore have been able to exert a progressive influence on tartans and paramilitary factions in a way that Faulkner never could. In the event, Fisk tells us, the Protestant paramilitaries need not have worried. 
For by Saturday afternoon, the phone calls to Horfenden Road and the Glengall Street Unionist Party headquarters were once more in their favour. The callers, some of them from the wealthy Malone Road district, regretted the murders. They were in turn reassured that the answer men had acted without orders. But nearly all of them expressed the view that the executive was finished.